3: and welcome to What You Missed This Week, I'm Joe Weisenthal. This is the podcast that has the best and most interesting interviews from the Daily Market Close show that I co-anchor with Scarlett Fu and Julia Cheddarley on Bloomberg Television called What You Miss. Our aim is to take you beyond the headlines and bring you unique perspectives on the week's top stories and, well, those that you may have just missed. It's the perfect way to kick off your weekend. This week, we talked with Mark Kiesel, PIMCO's Global Credit CIO. We asked him if he agreed with his colleague, Pimco CIO Dan Iverson's call that trade tensions may actually benefit the economy because it would put some sand in the gears to slow things down a bit and keep the economy from running too hot.
4: Well, I think what we have is an economy which was growing at 2% real growth, which is now growing at close to 3% due to the, the, the tax cuts and the fiscal stimulus. And we've got record profit growth. But if you look forward a year, a lot of that stimulus is going to fade. We have seen interest rates back up. We've seen 10-year rates back up about 80 basis points over the last year. And we've also seen the stronger dollar. So these trade concerns, I think, are going to uh, dampen investor sentiment a little bit. And naturally, we think the economy is going to slow. We're basically growing it 2.9% this year. We're probably going to grow at 2.2% next year. So that ultimately, I think, will cause the Fed to slow down the pace of tightening.
1: Uh, perhaps the uh, trade tension has slowed down the pace of moving around in the bond market. It's been a really boring quarter for U.S. bonds. and In fact, the most boring with the tightest trading range since 1965. Mark, do you think that this sets us up for a breakout? And if so, where do yields go next, materially higher or lower?
4: So I think we're probably going to stay within the range. And the reason why we've been in this benign range bound environment is because inflation is picking up, but it's doing so very gradually and it's allowing the Fed to normalize rates to a more neutral level. And they're basically just tightening very gradually. So it's kind of like a Goldilocks situation where the Fed can normalize rates. You can have inflation move moderately higher. And yet you don't get interest rates to to move meaningfully higher simply because the economy is not breaking out. It's growing well, but inflation is very much under control.
3: Uh, you hear a lot of people arguing that given the... Uh concern potential concerns about inflation, even if they're right now not breaking out. And given the narrow spread, that it doesn't make a ton of sense to go particularly long duration. You're almost getting paid as much to buy at the short end and the long end. But it feels like this is like such conventional wisdom. Uh, I'm curious where you stand on this issue. And does it make sense to reach a little bit further out on the spectrum?
4: So overall, we do think it makes sense to shorten your interest rate exposure a little bit here, simply because as the Fed has raised short rates, it's made shorter maturity bonds more attractive relative on the curve. Um, All things equal, though, we actually think that high quality bonds make increasing sense here. Rates have backed up almost 1% over the 12 The past 12 months and we also think that the earnings momentum and the growth momentum in the economy is close to peaking and what that means is that the equity markets will likely face a little bit more headwinds going forward Mm. now is actually not a bad time to Mm. consider moving out of some u.s equities into high quality bonds
5: mark you're basically talking there about a flatter yield curve and today we heard mnuchin saying look he doesn't care about the flatter yield curve and what it might suggest do you think it suggests in any way a recession to come or is that out
4: so I think I think a recession's unlikely call it 10% over the next year. We do however think over the next three to five years, it is likely we will have a recession, more than likely, probably 70% chance. Um, the flat yield curve right now simply reflects the fact that the Fed is able to, again, normalize short-term rates. And also global capital, the strong dollar which you've witnessed, that is coming in to support the long end of the curve.
2: Yeah.
4: Uh, we, think that, we think the yield curve is overall too flat. We ultimately think it will steepen moderately. The big issue we have is that we're running 4% deficits. We're gonna to be going to 5% budget deficits. That's an incremental $200 billion of incremental treasuries which need to go into the marketplace. So we do think there has to be some type of term premium. We do not think necessarily that the flat yield curve today is a signal that recession is imminent. Although we do think the economy, as I said earlier, is going to slow from this trend of 3% real Mm -hmm. to about 2% trend next year.
1: So Mark, I'm trying to square this idea of de-risking and moving more of your assets into bonds and on the front end of the curve. And this idea that we're in a Goldilocks scenario with nothing that's going to really shake the status quo for the foreseeable future. Can you just explain how those two, two things fit together? Because if it's Goldilocks, why not, go long, why not go long risk?
4: Yeah, I mean, well, you know, the best time to take risk is, as you know, when no one wants to take it. And it's usually coming out of recession. Yeah, but that's, the point that's, is, that is ship is that, has sailed, though. <laughs> yeah. The point is that the economic expansion in the U.S. is nine years now. It's very long. We do think the Fed is going to have to continue to tighten. You are seeing higher cost pressures feed into some of these companies. That is important. That means the Fed probably does need to keep raising rates. Wages are gradually picking up. And so essentially, the economy is going to slow and we're probably at peak profits. And the market, the equity market, as you know, is going to be forward looking. So I think the best world for equities is unfortunately behind us. And going forward, I think bonds are going to start to look like a pretty good proxy. They offer basically, you know, almost an equity return, not quite, but you can get four to five percent on high quality bonds right now with a third to a half the volatility of, of equities. So to, to us, that makes sense.
3: So we're talking uh, corporate credit here, high quality corporate credit, picking up some extra yield behind, uh, beyond just treasuries?
4: Yes. Basically, we like investment grade. We also like non-agency mortgages, mortgages. We're still very constructive on sectors that are focused on housing. Housing, we think, is still mid-cycle, whereas Mm. uh, some parts of the economy, like airlines and autos, are later cycle. We really like pipelines a lot. And we also think because of the tax cuts, consumer discretionary will continue to do well, particularly over the next year.
3: Then we switched gears to emerging markets with Mark and asked if now was the time for investors to sell U.S. junk bonds and load up on EM.
4: Well, we certainly would agree with reducing um, U.S. high yield here. We think, as we talked about earlier, we're in the later cycle of the U.S. expansion. We're probably going to have a recession in the next three to five years. Um, So we do think that that high yield, particularly the um, riskiest part of high yield, which is the triple C segment, Um, has run its course, and we would be reducing that. We do like some of the highest quality, um, high-yield area, the double Bs, particularly in the housing-related sectors. And in terms of where to rotate into, you mentioned emerging markets has been hit quite hard. We do see some select value there. I think what's hurt the emerging markets has been the strong dollar and obviously the Fed tightening and higher U.S. interest rates. That's caused capital to move out of emerging markets into the U.S., But the point is, is that a lot of this dollar strength, um, most of it, who knows when the dollar is going to peak, but a lot of that has happened already. And so going forward, Mm. emerging markets and currencies in emerging markets may make some sense.
5: Where's that select value in the emerging markets, Mark?
4: So I think if you look at kind of overall, we have a positive view on energy. And if you look at the supply and demand for energy right now, globally, even though China's slowing, Energy demand is actually holding up quite well, particularly for oil. If you look at U.S., Europe and China and India growth, that's holding up. So we would favor some of these emerging markets, which actually benefit from high and and stable oil prices. And so there are some companies in Mexico, Brazil and other areas. We also actually like emerging market companies that are focused on the consumer one thing when you when you despite higher interest rates in the united states the consumer is actually holding up really well here the consumers coming online in china in in china the consumer is only fifty three percent of overall growth that's likely to rise going forward and and i think this trade concern with china China's going to offset that by lowering rates and stimulating their economy. So, I ultimately think owning some emerging markets does make sense at these valuations.
3: Uh, Mark, I know we're talking about EM here, but in this segment and in the last segment, you mentioned some positivity towards housing. And I'm very curious about that because. The data is like "Mm, not that great, if you look at home builders not doing great, slow increases in the uh, case Shiller, but it's hard to get a handle on exactly what's going on, how much of it supplies. So, I'd love to hear your read on the U.S. housing market and why you think it might make sense to pick up some exposure to it.
4: Yeah, so we're basically, I think, kind of in the fifth or sixth inning of the housing market um, recovery. We're probably another two or three years before we peak. And, and the reason why I'd be still constructive is just the strength of the underlying private sector. Mm. Um, overall affordability is still attractive. The number one reason is low inventories. Basically, if you look right. around all these markets, inventories are very low. The consumer's healthy. Housing still affordable. So you really need the inventories to pick up. Uh, In order for you to have a problem in housing and that that simply just hasn't happened yet
1: Which sector do you see as the most challenged? I mean, I'm thinking of say for example Telecommunications with high yield and how uh, some of that has come under pressure. Is there an area you're seeing?
4: Well, we, we like the consumer overall, but we do think that some of the retail sector has been disrupted by Amazon if you look also Airlines and autos, we think, are probably later cycle. A lot of that pent-up demand has been filled. The big thing we're seeing from a bottom-up perspective, and at PIMCO, we've got 60 analysts looking at this, these higher costs are going to impact profitability for some of these sectors. So companies are having to pay more to hire people. And also, there's a lot of inflation, particularly in transportation. Uh, so the higher costs are going to feed through, and I think that is going to be a headwind for, for many of these sectors, more so in 2019 than now. But those higher costs are coming in the pipeline. Uh,
3: Mark, on the question of emerging markets, you mentioned that you think maybe the dollar story has played out. Does that mean uh, preferring the local currency debt? Uh, we actually still like some of the hard,
4: hard currency debt. And, and And the other point I wanted to make is that we're going to start to see over time, the story's really been about the divergence globally, where the mm-hmm. Fed has raised rates and the dollar strengthened and the U.S. rates have gone up. Other central banks have been on hold. That's, that's hit emerging markets. The story, story going forward is going to be the Fed's eventually going to have to slow that pace of tightening. And you're going to likely see other central banks start to raise rates like the ECB. Like, like, like the uh, Bank of Japan, et cetera. And so ultimately, I think that will um, prevent further dollar strength going forward, particularly at the same rate we've seen over the last, let's say, two or three months.
3: David Kirkpatrick, Techonomy Media CEO and the author of The Facebook Effect, also came on to talk about President Trump's latest attack on big tech this time aimed at Google. We asked David if there was any truth to the president's claims that the search engine was rigging their algorithm against him.
6: Well, the study that Trump was ostensibly referring to, which he saw on Fox News, really is one that has no objective basis. It was a highly amateurish research project that has been effectively debunked all day by people who've been trying. In fact, many people trying to repeat that experiment have found quite the opposite result. That, in fact, conservative news was being favored. So on the basis of the most bare facts, there's no basis for it. But, you know, I think what we've seen before is that the president and others on the right are willing to be very critical of the media in hopes that they can push it in their direction and sometimes it works just you know intimidation works
3: so they're playing the ref basically there is one core truth though which is that as a society we have outsourced an incredible amount of power to private companies to basically have a real say of Who gets to uh, say what in the public sphere?
6: Well, Joe, as you know, this is one of my big concerns. And it applies to Facebook and Google and some other companies, but particularly those two. Essentially, the public sphere is now dominated by those companies. Yeah. And I think it's particularly Facebook. The town square for the world is the way I like to call it. That's just wrong that a commercial company should control where speech is happening and be able to make judgments about what is accepted and what is not. And Google, to a lesser degree, is involved in that as well. That's a problem. And that actually needs to be remedied somehow. The problem is that nobody has a good way to remedy it. Right. Least of all, the president, and nothing the president is doing is, is leading to a nuanced policy discussion that might help us solve right. that well, problem.
1: But do you think that, and I think that this is something that was sort of brought up today throughout the many discussions people have had about this, Google has a black box when it comes to True. how they rank different yeah. stories from the so search does Facebook. results. So does Facebook. Is it important, do you think, for that black box to become demystified so we understand what goes into that?
6: In general, on sort of common sense terms, I'd say yes. The problem is once it's demystified, it gets played even more because there's such a huge industry devoted to trying to get attention on the Internet that anything that Facebook or Google say about how their services work will be exploited by advertisers most of all, by politicians, by evil people, etc. So it's a problem. and, and what I believe is that maybe we need some intermediary transparency where there's a government agency or a global agency or something which doesn't yet exist that ha- that gets some insight into how these systems work that we are denied. That might be the way to do it. Maybe there needs to be some kind of citizen's court that has been proposed by Mark Zuckerberg himself.
5: At the moment, there's not a citizen's court, but lawmakers that some of the leaders of these businesses, certainly Sheryl Sandberg and Jack Dorsey and one of the leaders of Alphabet, we yet to know who, will be going up in front of, well, going up to Capitol Hill, September the 5th, to talk about Russia within all of this. Will the public hearings help at all, or does that just muddy the water even further?
6: I think it's good that these people's feet is being held to the fire. so it, is, it will be beneficial, I'm afraid, that given past experience, certainly Cheryl Sandberg will not be very candid. She's not been candid about this in repeated public appearances. Jack Dorsey, I think, tries harder to be honest and constructive, but it's really hard given the concerns of Congress. He will get a ton of questions about this issue we're discussing right now, which is right-wing bias, and so will Cheryl. And They will have to somehow come, come back with a reply on that. A lot of the questions come from Congress are not very intelligent. You know, they don't really have a deep grasp on how these systems work. But I still think having discussion in Congress is beneficial, better than nothing.
3: Uh, the issue of, quote, shadow banning on Twitter seems to be kind of a myth. It does, I haven't seen much compelling evidence that, um, that that's like a real thing, that they're really doing that to conservatives. But we have seen a lot of people, like, call for Twitter to uh, remove InfoWars and some other particularly sort of. Uh, inflammatory actors from their uh, platform, What what would you advise Jack to do when he gets these calls to uh, remove certain people for going over some some line.
6: Well, Twitter way more than Facebook has operated on a real principled approach that they really don't ban people except in the most egregious circumstances. The thing, and and Twitter's algorithm, Twitter is less algorithmic, therefore it is somewhat more transparent how it works. The real question is Facebook, in my opinion, and and Google as well, as, as was being said before these are black boxes. I wouldn't at all be surprised if in response to the criticism from the president today, Google does a little tweaking just to try to take the heat off. Nobody would know.
1: But hold on a second. I I want to go back to something that you said that perhaps there should be an intermediary that acts uh, in between the population and these companies to check out their black boxes. What makes you think that regulators who just said don't always ask the most intelligent questions or some uh, popular Mm -hmm. group would be better at it when it could be politicized much more directly.
6: Well, that's another way of saying it just can't be done. I believe somehow we can find a way. We're living in a new world where global companies have unprecedented power that has not been taken stock of by government in general at the national or global level. We have to have that dialogue. It may not happen overnight. And I don't know the answer. And honestly, I have paid close attention to this topic. I've not seen a good answer coming from anywhere. But a lot of serious people are thinking about mechanisms that might be created. Just, just maybe it if-
3: go back there pull the plug out of the Facebook server.
6: Some people say that's what's going to be necessary in the end, given the the political interference that's happening. I hope not.
5: Does it affect the business model? Should we see Mm. a sell-off in our share price?
6: Why do you think Facebook dropped $120 billion in one day? Because their growth was slowing and their profitability was slowing, in large part, because of actions they were taking to try to reduce uh, unfair information and politically distortive information. So, yes, it will affect the stock prices of these companies.
1: Well, I should just point out uh, Facebook climbed up pretty close
0: back to its highs. I know. So it didn't exactly. That's why they end
6: up not taking it that seriously.
0: You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds.
3: Then we turn to the wildfires that tore through Northern California. The blaze is more than 90% contained, and now the focus is shifting to who foots the bill for the damage. California has already shelled out about $405 million of emergency funds to contain the fire, but a state law puts most of the burden on utility companies for the aftermath and recovery. Caroline Kowski, director of policy research and engagement at the Wharton Risk Center, came on to explain the inverse condemnation law and how it affects utility companies.
2: Yeah, this is a unique situation to California. In fact, condemnation stems actually from the California State Constitution, and it's related to taking. So when private property is taken or damaged for public use by a public entity, they're required to pay the owner just compensation. And the courts have essentially said that utilities count as public entities, investor-owned utilities, and that wildfire damage is just the type of damage that you have to provide compensation for. So if a wildfire is started from utility lines or equipment, they can be held liable for all of the property damages through inverse condemnation. And what makes this a bit controversial is that it operates as a strict liability regime. That means that the utility has to pay for all the property damage, whether or not they were negligent. Mm. So you could have a situation where you have bad weather. It's really hot. It's really dry. There's really high winds that blow something into the line. And it's not really the fault of the utility, but they'd still be required to pay all the damages.
5: I mean, this is something that PG&E knows all too well right now, Carolyn. Can you paint the picture of what's happening to that particular company, how they've been fighting some of the the costs that have come their way since 2017 and and whether this marks some sort of shift?
2: Yeah. So um, Cal Fire has determined that some of those fires were Indeed, started by utility equipment, and so they're facing possible damages that they're responsible for of probably at least two and a half billion, and some have given estimates up to ten billion and beyond. So these are not small numbers for the company, and you know, everyone has started to take. Notice, There's, you know, we saw drops in their stock prices and credit downgrades. They didn't pay their dividend for the first time, which is really unusual. And so there is concern about these costs. And I think it was really the huge um, fires last year. And again, the fires this year weren't caused by utilities, but they really drove home the point that wildfire risk is increasing. And we're going to see really high levels of damage.
1: Yeah, the wildfires in California are now an annual occurrence, albeit the last two years they've really worsened. Uh, pg and has also said that it may face bankruptcy if it doesn't sort out the costs from these fires, particularly the 2017 blazes. California now says it will allow utilities to finance the fire costs with bonds. If inverse combination were to change, of the different stakeholders involved, whether it's PG&E and the utilities or ratepayers or insurers, who has the most incentive to to try to change this and and to at least move it along to something that doesn't place all the burden on on PG&E?
2: Yeah, well, I think this is something that investor-owned utilities are quite concerned about for exactly the reasons you lay out, the huge liabilities that they could be facing. Some of the pushback has been among concerns that um, reforming inverse condemnation could take away incentives for utilities to engage in proper risk reduction. But that's not necessarily the case because Mm -hmm. in order to pass rates, to pass costs on to ratepayers, they have to go through a process with the California Public Utility Commission. And that commission only lets them pass on costs if the utility was found to have been acting prudently. So there really is still an incentive mm. for them to engage in proper risk management so that they can pass those costs on, even if we reform inverse condemnation and move it more towards a situation of negligence. It may be also worth saying that even if inverse condemnation is reformed, they can be held viable through the tort system, just like anyone else who starts a wildfire. And there's been examples of other human caused wildfires for which people were held responsible through, through the courts.
5: Carolyn, we're looking at, you know, very extreme pictures. This has been a really sad fact for the state and for, for many. What, what can actually be done to reduce the risk of wildfires? What is being done and is it going to work, do you think?
2: Yes, it's been tragic, the wildfires the last couple of years and the damages and the loss of life that they've caused. And I think it's making everyone take a very hard look at what can be done uh, to better manage this risk. And, of course, one of the things that would probably do the most help and reducing it is one of the hardest things to think about which is where we're choosing to build and there are areas They're referred to as the wildland urban interface where homes are mixed in with fire prone vegetation. And there are more homes in this very high risk area in California than in any other state. And the number there has just been growing. And so we're essentially putting people in harm's way, which is what drives up the property damage, but also puts people's lives at risk. And so, you know, many have started to say, maybe it's time to step back and think about where and how we're allowing development to go.
3: And finally, we got to wrap up on this week's market action with Dan Suzuki, portfolio strategist at Richard Bernstein Advisors. And we asked him how markets were reacting to the constant stream of trade headlines.
7: Yeah, I think if you look at the trade action, it was pretty clear that it was very much a reaction to the positive news uh, with Mexico. Um, but I think if you just step back and look at the past uh, few weeks or the past few months, it's really more about fundamentals, right? So I think, you know, if you had just looked at the headlines over the last three or four months, you would have thought until this week that things were just progressively getting worse and worse. But the reality is, reality is that we've had four, soon to be potentially five consecutive months of positive returns from stocks, and that's not just a function of trade, right? The trade has escalated over that period, but stocks have done well, and that's really getting back to the fundamentals and what, how great, great second quarter earnings season was and things like that.
3: Yeah, what felt really striking today is we're used to the stock market over the last several months overcoming negative headlines, whether it's overcoming Turkey, whether it's overcoming trade, whether it's overcoming Facebook earnings. Today felt like the first day that one of these issues, maybe one of the minor ones, actually fell away.
7: Yeah, that's absolutely right. So, I mean, you know, headlines can absolutely swing both ways. And today was one of the days where it swung uh, swung to the positive. But the reality when I think just the lesson over the last few months is really, you know, how to parse out. You know, I think the trick to investing is really parsing out the noise from the fundamentals. Mm -hmm. You know, at RBA, we're really just focused on profits, liquidity and sentiment. And if the headlines don't affect one of those three things, they don't matter. And, and that's, that, that's shown through in the performance recently.
5: But Dan, I mean, I was looking at sentiment being buoyed from before even when futures were open and that was on the back of a, going on in Asia. It seems to be China that's passing the buck yeah. at the moment in terms of risk appetite rather than actually what happened between between Mexico and the US.
7: Yeah. Uh, today's, uh, you know, today's headlines are all about reading through what what this means for the future of global trade. So, you know, the part of the reason the markets have rallied so much is not just because of what's going on in Mexico it has implications for what's happening with Canada and the bigger picture is what's happening with our trade agreements with Europe and with China. So obviously there, the sentiment. But trade w-
5: is not getting a breakthrough with China. It's just that they're supporting the yuan.
7: Well, I think there is still there's actually building optimism. And, and okay. to, to be honest, like we're not really focused around that opti- optimism, waning and, and, and sentiment game. We're really focused on the fundamentals. Are the trade tensions with China and the rest of the world going to escalate to the point where they're going to cause a profit collapse? We're not positioned for that. We don't think that that's the case. But the reality is that I think the market, if you look at the price action, has priced in a lot of the bad news until today, but not a lot of the offsetting factors. Now, there are a lot of offsetting factors uh, with regards to China and the rest of emerging markets.
3: Well, let's get into that because the fundamentals are really good. And everyone knows profits are not only strong, but the profits outlook is very strong. In the U.S. In the U.S. But U.S. stocks are now at all time highs so do you feel that at this point there's still good news in the fundamentals that is not being reflected in stock market in the S&P at all-time highs.
7: Yeah, so getting back to the three things that matter to the markets, I think they're all still really supportive today. So the profit cycle is actually accelerating. If you look at second quarter earnings season, I mean, there's a lot to like about it. This is the first time we've seen double-digit top-line growth for the S&P since as far back as I can remember, despite the fact that currency is less of a a positive. And then tax, you know, tax is benefiting. But even if you take the tax benefit Mm. away, pre-tax profits were accelerating. We're talking about like 15% pre-tax profits so profits are uh, are positive there's tons of liquidity out there whether you look at uh, bank lending standards or what have you and then sentiment I think is quite quite bearish
1: so when do we hit uh, the peak here when does it start to decline Mm -hmm.
7: Uh, are you talking about the markets or yes about the
1: markets I'm talking about uh, earnings
7: so I think um, it's it's funny, investing is kinda of like potty training. I don't know if either of you guys have kids. I'm yes, literally doing that right, oh, you are, so, <laughs> right, right now. So we just finished potty training, right? And so if I asked you, if you're literally right in it now, you know, if I asked you what when's your when's your child gonna go potty the next time, you'd probably give me some sort of big estimate based on what how much they've had to drink and when the last time they went. <laughs> but the reality is that's <laughs> you're not speaking not how you, my language. But but that's not how you're you're managing your, your potty training, right? What you are what are you doing, you're looking out for the signs, the signals that are going to tell you when they're going to go. So is he <laughs> or she going to cross her legs, sit in the corner and do the potty dance? And that's what we're looking for in the market. So what are the signals? We're not really, you can make some sort of yeah. estimate of what that peak is going to be, but the reality is, why forecast the forecasting tools? We're really going to be looking out for the signals that tell us that the bear market
3: that, is. I love that. Analogy.
1: It's fantastic. That's My really
7: kid Use is only one year on old on. and
5: I've got so much excitement to come when I'm thinking <laughs> about the S&P 500 every time I just want to <laughs> (laughs)
3: and that's it for this episode of what you missed this week if you like this podcast make sure to subscribe and rate us wherever you listen to podcasts and tune in every weekday to our daily market close show from 3 30 to 5 p.m on bloomberg tv and from 4 to 5 p.m streaming on twitter thanks for listening and have a great weekend